0: Today we're going to be talking about pre-hospital and emergency department management of ST Segment Elevation, MI, what you can't afford to miss. Hello, my name is Eric McCoy, aka McCoy, aka EMAC, from the University of California, Irvine, Department of Emergency Medicine. Let's start off with a case. You have a 911 activation of a 65-year-old lady who complains of shortness of breath for approximately two hours, nauseousness without any chest pain. She has a history of diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. She takes a lot of medicines, of which she can remember she takes insulin and she thinks she takes it more often than not. And she is a smoker. Your physical examination is relatively unremarkable, aside from the fact that she's in her basement with a big bottle of liquor and she's relatively angry. So, when your partner gets together and you do, uh, you know, you get your IV, your O2, your monitor, and you get an EKG, and it shows this. And you look to your partner, and they look at you, and you think STEMI, or ST Segment Elevation, am I? Today, we're going to be talking about the definition, brief background, a little bit about coronary artery anatomy, pathophysiology, pre-hospital care, ED management, and STEMI on the EKG. Now, EKG is synonymous with ECG, which you'll see most of the text today, but I'm old school, so EKG, for our intensive purposes, is going to be said EKG during this lecture. There's going to be two take-home points I want you guys to learn today, so goals and objectives, and there's two of them for you today. Number one, I want you to learn how to recognize the anatomical heart locations on the EKG, and number two, I want you to learn how to recognize and diagnose STEMI on the EKG. So those are your goals and objectives, and that's what you're gonna know by the time this lecture ends. So let's talk about the definition. ACS, or Acute Coronary Syndrome, describes cardiac ischemia that results when a blood clot or thrombus narrows or occludes a coronary artery anatomy. Specifically, ACS is ischemia secondary to plaque rupture, but it's an umbrella term, and it includes things such as unstable angina, non-ST segment elevation MI, and ST segment elevation, MI, for which we're gonna be talking about today. So let's talk about the definition in regards to uh, the pathophysiology. So here we have a coronary vessel, and here a little bit of early plaque formation. As this gets worse, you have a lipid-laden atheromatous plaque. Although it does augment the blood flow, you still have fair blood flow passing through this plaque. If you have on top of this plaque rupture and or thrombus, you can have significant narrowing. So here you see, although it's significantly narrowed, you still have a little bit of flow going beyond there. So any of the heart muscle or the myocardium beyond there is starved of the oxygen and the nutrients that the blood is supplying. So there's two options that can go from this point right here. You could either A, have resolution of that clot, or B, have total occlusion of the clot, for which we're gonna be talking about today. STEMI, ST-segment elevation MI, for our intensive purposes, it's 100% occlusion of the coronary artery vessel in, 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 that we're talking about. If you can see here, there is no blood flow going beyond this point right here. So any blood flow, any myocardium beyond this point is infarcting and or dying. Brief background. Acute myocardial infarction is a leading cause of death in the United States. We can say CAD, or coronary artery disease, is a leading cause of death in the United States. The rapid diagnosis and treatment is one of the hallmarks of the specializations of EMS and EM, or emergency medicine. Owing to, the emergency department is a common entry point for patients with MI. MI is a life-threatening condition, and the EMS system has the tools to manage it effectively. Not to mention that missed mi is, has long been one of the most common justifications for monetary awards in EM litigation. Let's start off with coronary artery anatomy or coronary anatomy. So each of these successive portions of this lecture, we're going to build on your fund of knowledge. So we're going to supply and or satisfy those two goals and objectives, which is one, Identify the anatomical heart locations on the EKG. And two, learn how to recognize and diagnose a STEMI on the EKG. So I'm not trying to trick you, so the answers are on the screen. So number one here is a aorta. Number two is a right coronary artery. Three is the left anterior descending artery. Four is the circumflex artery. And five is the left main artery, the left main coronary artery which is behind the pulmonary artery. Right here we have the right atrium, we have the right ventricle, and we have the left ventricle. Alright, let's do this again. Here's another picture. Here we have the aorta, the pulmonary artery, right coronary artery, left main, left anterior descending, and the circumflex artery. Right atrium, right ventricle, and left ventricle. Wow, another picture. Our third picture of the coronary artery anatomy. The reason we're doing this is because it's vitally important that you know the coronary artery anatomy in regards to where the ventricles are at because Later on, we're going to learn in order to diagnose and recognize anatomical heart locations and or where a certain lesion is happening, we have to know, one, what part of the heart is being affected, and two, what arteries supply that portion of the heart. So with that information, you'll be able to recognize the anatomical heart locations on the EKG and recognize and diagnose the STEMI. So once again, right coronary artery here, left main left anterior descending, left circumflex, right atrium, right ventricle, and left ventricle. Now let's put that heart inside a body and see through the skin. Same thing. Right coronary, left main, left anterior descending, left circumflex goes behind but we can't see it here, right atrium, right ventricle, left ventricle. Here's the aorta, pulmonary artery anatomy. Now, let's put some skin over that and see where the heart sits inside the chest. And This is going to become important when we're talking about the EKG lead placement because now you know the coronary artery anatomy, you know the ventricles, you know where it sat inside the chest without the skin. Now, with the skin, this is where you can imagine that the anatomy and the vessels are at. Now, you tell me. Right atrium, right ventricle, left ventricle left anterior descending, and right coronary artery. Pathophysiology we discussed a little bit earlier. Today we're talking about STEMI or ST segment elevation MI or complete 100% occlusion of the coronary artery vessel that we're talking about. So if you look down here, 100% occlusion. You have no blood flow beyond that point, so any heart that is being supplied by this vessel is now getting injured and or infarcting. Pre-hospital care management of STEMI is driven by three goals: delivering the patient to the appropriate healthcare facility, preventing sudden death and controlling arrhythmias, and initiating and continuing management of patients during transfers. As all patients are critically ill patients, it's always ABCs, ivo 2 monitor, airway, breathing, circulation, IVs 2 large bore antecubital fossas, oxygen, and monitors are cardiac monitors and pulse ox monitor. How about the ED evaluation? So it's the diagnosis of STEMI. So all patients who come to the emergency department with chest pain suggestive of acute coronary syndrome means an EKG within 10 minutes. The American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the European Society of Cardiology all concur that a STEMI exists when the EKG of a patient with acute chest pain shows the following. one one or more millimeter ST segment elevation in two or more contiguous limb leads. Two, one millimeter ST segment elevation in precordial leads V4 through 6. Three, two millimeter ST segment elevation in leads V1 through 3 or a new left bundle branch block. Lab tests are not a component of a STEMI diagnosis. Now for the first four here, we'll try to make it more simplistic. So think of it as a STEMI exists when there's more than one millimeter ST segment elevation in two or more contiguous leads, with the caveat that in leads V1 through three, it has to be two millimeters, or a new left bundle branch block. So what is one millimeter, and ST segment elevation from what? So on your EKG, those tiny tiny little boxes. Each little box has a height of one millimeter. Okay, so we know that. Now what about the ST segment and elevation from what? So here on your EKG you will have the P wave, QRS complex, ST segment, and T wave. Sometimes you'll see the U wave less often than you will. And then you will have the next complex here. The ST segment is that segment in between the QRS complex, which is here, and the T wave, which is here. So it is this segment right here. So okay, one millimeter, which is one box, ST segment elevation from what? What is the baseline we're measuring this against? And that baseline is the T to the next P. So this is the actual baseline you're measuring this ST segment against. Let's take a look at an example. Here we have our P wave, QRS complex, ST segment. Here's our T wave, and here is the baseline. Now, this brings into uh, consideration something called the J point. So the J point is the point where you want to um, start looking at the EKG to measure the beginning of the ST segment. So the J point is the portion where there's a transition between the QRS and the ST segment. That is usually a point that's higher than the baseline of your ST segment. So on this part, you can see there's a point right here. So where do you start measuring the ST segment? One box away from that. So here's our J point, which is the transition between the QRS complex and the ST segment. And let us get our pointer back. So here's the J point, and you go box over, and this is where you measure the ST segment from. So here's the ST segment. What is our baseline? Our baseline is the T to the next P. So we'll say it's one, two, three, four, about five boxes, or five millimeters. So this ST segment is elevated by five millimeters. This ST segment, is, uh, this ST segment elevation here is very large. You're not likely to see this. However, this is just for illustrative purposes. But if it's this large, you should be very worried. EKG mimics. Now, there are many things that can cause ST segment elevation, aside from just ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Each of these warrants a lecture all by themselves, but we'll just talk a little bit about them so you guys will become aware of them. So pericarditis, myocarditis. Well, the patient may have fever or recent radiation therapy, not feel well. Benign early repolarization, usually in young healthy males. Left ventricular hypertrophy is associated with hypertension. Pacer, they'll have pacing spikes on their EKG. Hyperkalemia, we'll see if the patient may have renal failure. Coronary vasospasm, cocaine use or other stimulant use. Ventricular aneurysms, these patients usually have a prior MI and it's usually associated with Q waves. How about the ED evaluation? Well there's the history. Usually, chest pain is a cardinal symptom, but not always present. You have to be aware uh, and cognizant of the atypical presentations of these types of activities. So epigastric pain, shortness of breath, weakness, confusion. Be very wary of the old diabetic female, because old patients can have atypical symptoms. Diabetics can have atypical symptoms. Females can have atypical symptoms. If you have all three, be very, very afraid. Historically taught to review the major cardiovascular risk factors, they have very little impact on the ED management in regards to a patient with active chest pain in a diagnostic EKG because those two things alone trump everything else. So if they have acute chest pain syndrome and a diagnostic EKG, that trumps all. So devaluation: evaluation. The physical exam was limits usefulness in initial management. However, if they have a new murmur. They may have a papillary muscle rupture. JVD, they may have right-sided heart failure, slow, cap refill, a weak pulse, think about cardiogenic shock. What if they have crackles or wheezes? Consider congestive heart failure. Hemiparesis, anybody with chest pain and a focal neurological sign or symptom, consider aortic dissection. Initial therapies, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines are evidence plus consensus opinion. However, evidence for many common practices are controversial. But the initial therapies we're going to talk about today are oxygen, aspirin, nitroglycerin, morphine, and beta blockers. Oxygen. There's a theoretical benefit for maximizing O2 delivery. We talked about that STEMI is 100% occlusion of the coronary artery anatomy. So it would only make sense to provide some blood and some oxygen beyond that occlusion. This was first recommended more than hundred years ago. However, there are studies showing harmful effects in non-hypoxic patients. It decreased their cardiac output. But the data is varied in regards to hypoxic patients, showing anywhere from no effect to some improvement. The first randomized trial on this for patients in MI showed reduction in uh, the MI-associated enzyme elevation. However, that was not uh, statistically significant. But more importantly, that was a disease-oriented outcome, not a patient-oriented outcome. So the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association STEMI guidelines only recommend oxygen for hypoxic patients. What are my recommendations? If you have a patient with pain between their chin and their crotch, give them oxygen. For those who took me literally, if your patient has chest pain, give them oxygen, even if they're not hypoxic, are my personal recommendations. How about aspirin? Chewing aspirin reduces the mortality by 23% one month after a heart attack. Wow, that's that's a remarkable statistic, but why don't we hear these things on TV? That's because aspirin isn't patented, you can buy that at the store. Benefits decrease if you take it too long, more than four hours, but still let them take it if they haven't. Aspirin is an antiplatelet agent. It's rapidly and maximally absorbed when you chew it. So when you give it to them, tell them to chew the aspirin, don't just swallow it. And it takes effect within the first hour. If they have an allergy to aspirin, you can give them clopidogrel or Plavix. How about nitroglycerin? We said STEMI was 100% complete occlusion of the coronary artery, so it would make sense that if we increase the diameter or relax the artery, we're gonna increase the likelihood that blood is gonna flow beyond that spot that's either thrombosed or having occlusion. So it also helps alleviate spasmodic and ischemic type of pain is contraindicated in patients with recent use of erectile dysfunction drugs. So feel comfortable asking them, hey, have you been taking anything over the counter or uh, any drug to help with your male enhancement? Nowadays, you could buy these things at the candy store. So definitely ask them, are they taking any erectile dysfunction drugs? And the reason being is, you can bottom out their blood pressure if you give them the nitro and they've been on these uh, types of medicines. Caution in patients with right ventricular infarction because again, you could bottom out their blood pressure. The goal is to relieve the pain in these patients, and you want to limit the blood pressure drop by 30% of their baseline if they're hypertensive, but only 10% if they're normal-tensive. Morphine. The patient is seeing you today because they have chest pain. Help with their pain. So it blocks the pain receptors, and it provides some anxiolysis. It dilates the arteries and veins, reducing the pre- and afterload. Caution in patients with hypotension, similar to those uh, with the erectile dysfunction drugs and a the nitro. These all can have an effect on the patient's blood pressure. Initial dose is 2 to 4 milligrams and uh, 2 to 8. Give them a dose that's going to work for their chest pain. Beta blockers. Reduce metabolic demand. So if your heart's pumping so fast because one of the coronary arteries is occluded, well, it's going to try to pump more blood, and that's consuming more oxygen that you can't get to a certain part of your heart. So it would make sense if we slow it down a little bit, you're going to consume less oxygen. Early evidence showed that reduced rates of reinfarction and recurrent ischemia in those receiving reperfusion. However, recent evidence giving beta blockers to all STEMI patients may lead to increased incidence of cardiogenic shock. American College of Cardiology... American Heart Association currently recommends an oral beta blocker be given within 24 hours and that IV beta blockers are reasonable for hypertensive patients who do not have signs of heart failure, evidence of low cardiac output state, post-beta blocker cardiogenic shock risk factors such as old age, hypotension, tachycardia, bradycardia, or prolonged symptoms, and other relative contraindications, the ones that we typically think about when we um, are giving patients beta blockers, prolonged PR, 2nd to 3rd degree heart block, active asthma, and or reactive airway disease. Oral beta blockers do not need to be given or started in the emergency department. Once again, the recommendations are within 24 hours. So, the definitive treatment. We talked about STEMI, or ST segment elevation MI, is 100% occlusion of a coronary artery vessel. So the treatment would be, well let's unclog it somehow. So once you diagnose a STEMI, the next immediate step is the de- decision to rapidly reperfuse the infarcting myocardium with either A, fibrinolytics, or B, PCI, or percutaneous coronary intervention. If you look here, here is the STEMI. This is 100% occlusion of the coronary artery vessel. The blood can no longer flow forward and it goes backwards. Here you have viable and alive myocardium. This part is dying. So in this instance here, you can see where the occlusion was here, and this is your infarcting myocardium. Time is money is myocardium. So we talked about the definitive treatment. We gotta open this clot up. So lytics or fibrinolytics versus PCI. And for lytics today, we have Darth. And for PCI, we have Yoda. Thrombolytics. So thrombolytics are pharmacological clot busters. They're gonna go in there and blow this clot up, which makes sense. We have the vessel that's clogged up, let's send something in there to blow it up. Recommendations are for door-to-drug time within 30 minutes of contact, meaning you contact the patient, hopefully within 30 minutes you've made the decision to diagnose a STEMI and push your drug. The greatest benefit is within one to three hours from symptom onset, but it's okay if they're up to 12 hours. Success is around 60 to 80% and it diminishes with time. Multiple different types of lytics and it's institution specific. At our institution, we just happen to use TPA. It may be different at your institution. The primary complication is bleeding. And the highest risk is within t- for the first 24 hours. Intracranial hemorrhage is the most devastating. It occurs in less than 1% of patients. However, of those 1% of patients, more than half of them die that's unfortunate. So you have to be very cautious in regards to identifying those patients who have risk factors and or contraindications to pushing your thrombolytic. What are those contraindications? The absolute ones are anything you think that may may cause this patient to bleed in their brain. Known structural CNS lesion. Any history of head bleed in the past. Ischemic stroke in the last three months excluding the last three hours. With the, the recent uh, neural guidelines in regards to pushing that three hours to four and a half hours uh, for a stroke, we're probably going to see this number change as well to 4.5. Significant closed head injury within the last three months. Suspicion of aortic dissection. And when I say suspicion, I don't mean I'm just pondering it. If in your heart of hearts you think this patient has an aortic dissection that's on the same level as the STEMI or even higher on your differential than the STEMI, don't do it. But if you just suspect it and, hey, it's on our differential, okay, that's not necessarily an absolute contraindication. So you have to believe or have to have a high suspicion that the patient is having aortic dissection. Or active bleeding is another absolute contraindication. Relative contraindications are here. You can pause this presentation and read it now or later. So, reperfusion outcomes comparable to PCI or percutaneous coronary intervention at 30 days when symptoms are short, low risk for bleed, and D2B or door-to-balloon time is more than 90 minutes. We're going to talk about that shortly. PCI. Percutaneous coronary intervention, also known as coronary angioplasty, also known as balloon angioplasty or cath. They're all the same thing, but today we'll talk about PCI. So effectively, we said, once again, STEMI was 100% occlusion of the coronary vessel. We either have to bust the clot open or we have to go in there and stent uh, the coronary artery open. Here is the vessel. Here is the decreased flow. They're going in with a stent. They're deploying it and they leave it there. So now you have a stented artery. Here's the plaque. Here's the stent with the balloon inside. They inflate the balloon and deflate the balloon and remove it and the stent is left in place. When available, PCI is a preferred reperfusion option of choice. There's more than 90% success rates in experienced high volume centers. Goals door to balloon time, less than 90 minutes. So, PCI versus lytics, uh, which one is better? Let's take a look at some data from The Lancet not too long ago. The top here is short-term outcomes and the bottom is long-term outcomes. The white rectangles are PCI and the darker ones are lytics. So if we look short-term and long-term for death, wow, less death with PCI, more or less death with PCI. How about non-fatal MI? Well, you have less of that with the PCI. How about recurrent ischemia? Less of that. And if you look across this image here, this picture here, you'll see that in general, for most things, PCI looks like it's winning. So, you make the decision. Yoda wins. Now this doesn't mean that lytics are bad drugs. This just means if you're at an institution that has cath lab capability, you're going to opt for the cath lab. However, less than about 20 to 25% of the hospitals in the United States have cath lab capability. Therefore, the overwhelming majority of the patients that show up somewhere with chest pain are going to be at a facility that does not have cath lab capability. In that case, Lytics are the option of choice. However, if you're at a place at a hospital that does have cath lab capability or if you're at a hospital that is not too far from a, a, a cardiac receiving center, you can you should send them to that center and/or if you had the cath lab, do it at your shop. So once again, this is not saying that lytics are better than PCI uh, are, are bad. It's just saying that if you have the option, you're gonna choose PCI. PCI and Linux in combination, so if one of them is good, two of them must be great. There's multiple randomized trials that show no benefit of this. However, in select patients, you may consider PCI after lytics. I'm going to briefly just talk about a few terms, facilitated rescue and follow up PCI. Facilitated PCI. This uses fibrinolytics to initiate fibrinolysis during transport to facilitate reperfusion via PCI prior to arrival at the cath lab. So if you're at a center that that does not have cath lab capability, but you're going to send them there and it's going to take longer than an hour and a half, you may want to facilitate that transport or facilitate opening up the vessel with lytics before they get their PCI. A multi-center study showed worse outcomes with a full dose of lytics. Mortality, shock, reinfarction, and need for urgent revascularization, and even CHF. So worse outcome if you use the full dose of lytics. However, based off of a recent trial, the latest guidelines are that Um, They do advise, facilitated PCI with less than full-dose lytics can be considered in patients with a uh, high mortality when PCI is unavailable within 90 minutes. Rescue PCI. Reperfusion with lytics is not always successful. You need a backup plan. So rescue or salvage PCI is considered in patients with... If you give them lytics and you don't have 50% resolution of the ST segment elevation in the most prominently elevated lead within 90 minutes, you need to be considering rescue PCI. If the patient is persistently hemodynamically unstable with arrhythmias and or ischemic symptoms or develop shock, you need to consider sending them to a place with cath lab capabilities. This could be done up to 24 hours after fibrinolysis. How about follow-up PCI? This is done after primary fibrinolysis, when angiography identifies persistently narrowed coronaries that would benefit from angioplasty. STEMI adjuncts. So agents that prevent regeneration of the coronary thrombi after patency is established. There's a two-pronged approach. One is preventing thrombin regeneration, and two is inhibiting the platelet function. So to inhibit thrombin regeneration, you wanna use anticoagulants, and to inhibit the platelets, you want to use antiplatelet therapy. Anticoagulants. American of Cardiology, American Heart Association Guidelines recommend giving an anticoagulant to all STEMI patients for a minimum of 48 hours. Heparin is the drug of choice at our institution, however, there are other agents as well. Antiplatelet therapy. We discuss aspirin, let's talk a little bit about a glycoprotein 2b3 inhibitors. And these are basically antibodies or small polypeptides that bind to or compete with these receptors. The action are they inhibit the cross-links with fibrinogen and further platelet aggregation. This is primarily used for patients undergoing PCI. And it's common to give these agents before or upon arrival to the cath lab. Once again there are uh, many options to choose from. In our institution we happen to give eptifibatide or integralin. Thionopyridines. Clopidogrel, a.k.a. Plavix. Once again, this is another antiplatelet agent. Um, the oral loading dose is 300 milligrams with a significant platelet inactivation within two hours. However, this dose is insufficient in a lot of, uh, for a pre-cath antiplatelet effects, So, which is the reason why you may see in your institution some of your cardiologists may want 600 milligrams instead of 300 milligrams. For the remainder of our talk, we're going to talk about recognizing the STEMI on the EKG. Now, once again, your two goals and objectives for today are two things. Recognize the anatomical heart locations on the EKG, and two, learn how to recognize and diagnose the STEMI on the EKG. What is this? What are we looking at? To most of you, you guys say this just looks like beans. How about this? What this is, is remember back 10, 15 years ago, those magic eye posters that you saw in every retail store and you look at it and you see some type of, uh, some type of horse or unicorn or some baby donkey eating a potato. And some people can see what's going on behind all these squiggly lines. And a lot of people just see the squiggly lines. So for most of us who are still trying to learn how to look at an EKG, the EKGs look just like this. They look like a whole bunch of squiggly lines for which some people can see what's going on and most of us can't. So for today, I'm going to help you see what you're supposed to see in the EKG. For those of you guys who want the answers to this image and the previous one, send me an email. I'll email you back. So STEMI on the EKG. Recognizing the anatomical heart locations on the EKG and diagnosing a STEMI. First goal and objective, we're gonna talk about now. Recognizing the anatomical heart locations on the EKG. We've already talked about the coronary artery anatomy. So once again, here it is inside the chest. Here it is with the skin. And here is the normal conduction system. So for our intents and purposes, we're just gonna to have to know a few things. Here's the SA node, the AV node, in the his system. Just know that the direction of the electrical activity on the heart or conduction system is from here to here. So imagine an arrow going this way to this way. Remember the direction right now of the conduction system because that's gonna become important when we're talking about how to recognize certain things that's going on with the heart's physiology. We talked about the one millimeter on your EKG, which is one little box here. We also talked about the ST segment and the ST segment elevation from the baseline, which is the T to the next P. Let's talk about EKG leads. The leads, the little sticky things you put on the patients, are electrodes that measure the difference in electrical potential between either two different points on the body, or bipolar leads, or one point on the body with a virtual reference point with a zero electrical potential. This is located in the center of the heart, and this is a unipolar lead. So it's either a bipolar or unipolar lead. Once again, these electrodes are simply pieces of equipment that measure the electrical potential between two points in space. The EKG, the 12 lead, has three standard limb leads, three augmented limb leads, and six precordial leads. Let's talk about the lead placement. So, left arm, right arm, right leg, left leg. It doesn't matter specifically where you put this as long as you put this in the right area. So you can also put these on the left shoulder, right shoulder, left hip, right hip. Because remember, these electrodes are measuring the electrical potential between two points. So these are the limb leads. So here when it's on the shoulder, it's just measuring the electrical potential between these two. Here when they're on the hips, they measure the electrical potential between these two. So once again, these are the lead placements. For some of you guys who have remembered, uh, smoke over fire um, and break and the gas. So let's talk about the standard limb leads. So once again, say for instance we put these leads on the patient's wrist, here, here, and on the patient's feet, right here. Let's have by convention the direction of our leads. So, lead one is gonna go from the patient's right arm to the left arm. And when I say direction, we're gonna be talking about uh, the direction that this lead is facing. So imagine these leads as arrows. So lead number one goes from the right arm to the left arm. Here are the feathers of the arrow. Here is the arrowhead of the arrow, and that's lead number one. Lead number two goes from here, the right arm to the leg. Here are the feathers, and here is the head of the arrow. That is lead two. Lead three is on the left arm and it goes to the right leg. Here are the feathers of the arrow and here is the head of the arrow. Now, this is convention. Lead one, lead two, lead three. You know which way these arrows are pointing. The point is where it's positive. So that's the direction of what we're talking about. Now, here's the heart in its anatomical heart location. In order for us to identify which lead looks at which portions of the heart, I'm gonna use a, uh, an example for you to imagine. <clears throat> so let's take lead one for instance. Lead one is facing this way. The arrow is pointing which direction? Correct, right arm to the left arm. Now, for you to imagine you're holding a camera, whatever camera you want, video camera, camcorder, picture camera. Let's do picture camera. You're holding this camera, where this lead is pointing, but you're taking a picture of the heart. And I'm gonna give you only a few options to take a picture of. I'm gonna give you an option to take a picture of the anterior portion of the heart, the inferior portion of the heart, and the lateral portion of the heart. So for right now, you only have three options. You can take a picture of the anterior aspect, the inferior aspect, or the lateral aspect. These limb leads are in the plane of the screen you're looking at, are in the Y axis. So, if I said, lead one, where is that at? You would say here to here, and you imagine, here's the arrow with the feathers and the arrow. Where's your camera? The arrow points to the camera. So your camera would be right here in this direction. And I said, well, what is lead one looking at? You're imagining taking a picture of, a heart, of the heart with your camera. So if your camera is over here, you'd be taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. You wouldn't be taking a picture of the inferior aspect and you're not taking a picture of the anterior aspect. What about lead two? Lead two is an arrow that points down and lead three is an arrow that points down. So lead two and three, their arrowheads both face down. So if I said, what is lead two and three looking at? You imagine in your head, well they're both facing downwards and the arrows point to my camera, So I'm taking a picture of the heart from down here, near the feet. If you're taking a picture from underneath the heart, your picture is going to show you the inferior aspect of the heart. So at least two and three take a picture of the inferior aspect of the heart. Let's continue. What about the augmented limb leads? Effectively, what they did with the augmented limb leads is took two of the electrodes, for instance, in AVL, the right arm and the leg, and said, let's make that a baseline of zero. So here's the baseline, so here's the feathers, and here is the arrow. So AVL is AV left, so points to the left. Similarly speaking, AVR is AV right. And AVF, you could think that of that is AV floor. So just remember left, right, and floor. So if I ask you what portion of the heart is AVL taking a picture of, okay? Here is your camera because AVL points to the left. So pointing, the arrowhead points over here, you'd be taking a picture of what? The lateral aspect of the heart. It's a high lateral, but you're still taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. How about AVR? I give you the option of anterior, inferior, and lateral. And you tell me, wow, this is not any of those. And for right now, you'd be correct. So we're gonna say none. And how about AVF or AV floor? So AVF points down to the floor, the arrowhead is here, your camera is here, and you're looking up at the bottom of the heart, it's the inferior aspect of the heart. Let's continue. These are all the limb leads. Now remember that the heart is right here in the middle, and the options you have are anterior aspect, lateral aspect, and inferior aspect. Lead number one, The arrow points this way, so if you're here, you're taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. Lead two and three, both are arrows pointing to the ground. So if you have your camera here, you're gonna take a picture of the inferior aspect of the heart. How about AVR? Right now we said none because that was uh, taking a picture of none of the options I gave you, anterior, lateral, inferior. AVL arrow points this way, your camera is here, you're taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. In AVF, your arrow points to the floor, your camera's here, and you take a picture of the inferior aspect of the heart. Now what were to happen if we took all these limb leads, all these arrows, and put the feathers together, and put that in the center of the heart, what would that look like? It would look like this. These are the leads we talked about, and we just took the butts of the arrows and put them together. This is lead one, this is lead two, 60 degrees. This is lead three, 120 degrees. AV left, AV right, and AV floor. And this is all in the plane of the screen, in the Y axis. So the heart is here in the center, and I say, okay, lead one, What picture is it taking of the heart? What is lead one looking at? Is a question that I'm asking you. And you think in your mind, well, lead one here, the arrow's pointing to my camera. My camera's gonna take a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. How about leads two, three, and AVF? You think to yourself, well, two, three, and AVF all point to the floor. That means what part of the heart they're looking at, well, my camera's here near the feet. I have to take a picture of the inferior aspect of the heart. And how about lead AVL? AVL points to the left, your camera is here. It's taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart and AVR is pointing to none right now. Let's continue. Now let's talk about the precordial leads. These precordial leads are going to be in the X axis or the axis that's coming out of the screen. So that axis is parallel to the ground you're walking on, that you're sitting on. If you're at a desk, it's parallel to the plane of your desk. So it's coming out in a third dimension, even though your computer screen shows you right now, two dimensions. So once again, we talked about the anatomical heart location in the chest. Here's the fourth intercostal space, and these leads are placed in this direction. One, two, three, four, five, and six. Now these are unipolar leads, meaning that we're not measuring the electrical potential between two leads. We have a place that we've called the zero point. And in this case, the zero point is the center of the heart. So think of the center of the heart as the feathers or the butts of all the arrows. In the arrowheads, the tip of the arrowheads, are these leads here. Here's the tip of an arrow, here's the tip of an arrow, here, 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 and here. So remember, when I ask you what picture are we taking, you always hold your camera wherever the arrow is pointing. So, precordial leads, similarly here, in a little bit better dimension, V1 through 6 are the precordial leads, and once again, these are in the plane, the x-axis, or the plane of your desk or the floor. Okay, if we took this patient here, and uh, chopped them in half and tilted their head towards us, we'd be looking down like this. So here's the spine, here is the chest, and here is the heart. So it's V1, V2, V3, 4, 5, and 6. Once again, these are unipolar leads, so the butt of the arrow is in the center of the chest, and the tips of the arrows are where we have our electrodes. V1 and V2 are right here, so their arrows are pointing right here. They take a picture of the septum. V3 and V4, once again, the arrows are pointing this way, so if I ask you what is that taking a picture of, your camera is right here, that's taking a picture of the anterior aspect of the heart. V5 and V6, The butts of the arrows are here, and the tips are here, so your camera is taking a picture on this side. You'd be taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. Better view. Leads V1 and V2 take a picture of the septum, because you're imagining. Here's the center. These are the butts of your arrows, and the two leads are here and here, so those are your arrowheads. You hold your camera where the arrowheads are pointing. You take a picture of the septum. V3 and V4, you're taking a picture of the anterior aspect of the heart. In V5 and V6, you're taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. So to review, here we have all the electrode placements and you already imagine in your mind you have your butt of your arrows inside the chest and all these electrodes are the arrowhead tips. So when I ask you, well where is V5 and V6, you imagine two arrows pointing this way hold your camera where your arrows are pointing and you're taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. V3 and V4, your arrows point here, your camera looks at the anterior aspect of the heart. V1 and V2, the arrows point straight out towards us. That means we're holding the camera straight on and we're taking a picture of the septum. Now, you know where all of those leads point to. This is where those leads happen to look like on the EKG. This is the distribution of the leads that you now know. So on the EKG, here's the orientation. V1 and V2 is a septum. And in your mind, you imagine there are two arrows pointing straight out towards me. So if I'm taking a picture of the heart, I'm taking a picture of the septum. V3 and V4, you imagine that those arrows are kind of pointing out to the side. And my camera is taking a picture of the anterior aspect of the heart. The lateral leads. Well, this includes both the limb leads and the precordial leads. One in AVL, if you imagine in your mind you saw the arrow going off to the left and one going off to the left and up, this is the patient's left, and your camera's over on the left side, you're taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. V5 and V6, the same thing. Those two arrowheads are pointing out of the left side of the chest. If you take a picture from that side, you're taking a picture of the lateral aspect of the heart. Inferior leads two, three, and AVF. In your mind, you can imagine there's three arrows pointing all towards the ground. If you take a picture from the ground, you're gonna be taking a picture of the inferior portion of the heart. This is the orientation of what you should be imagining when you see the EKG. This is the anatomical heart location on the EKG. And it all started off with you understanding the coronary artery anatomy, knowing where the heart is in regards to the chest, knowing where we place our leads at, knowing a little bit about that physics, and having an understanding of what portions of uh, the EKG represent what portions of the heart. It all comes from the anatomical heart location, the coronary arteries, the ventricles that they supply, and how the EKG looks. So when you see an EKG, now you should be seeing what portions of the heart may be affected depending on what leads you're looking at. Now we're going to talk about diagnosing a STEMI on an EKG. Cardiology, College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and the European Society of Cardiology all concur that STEMI exists when an EKG of a patient with chest pain shows. And remember, we try to simplify it. ST segment elevation at least one millimeter in two or more contiguous leads or a new left bundle branch block. With the caveat that precordial leads V1 through 3, you have to have two millimeters. So, one millimeter ST segment elevation, we discussed this previously, and you know that one millimeter is one tiny box, and you already know. Here's the ST segment we're talking about, and the elevation is using this as a baseline two or more contiguous leads, well, what does that mean? It means two or more leads looking at the same portion of the heart, but you already know the anatomical heart locations on the EKG. So two or more contiguous leads just means two leads that look at the same portion of the heart. So for instance, if somebody's having an MI and you see some ST segment elevation of at least one millimeter, and if it's inferior, it could be in two and three, or three in AVF, or two in AVF, or it can be in all three of them. But it at least has to be in two or more of the leads that look at the same portion of the heart. Same thing with the lateral. One, L, five, and six. You need two or more contiguous leads. So if five and six, hey, that looks like that's a, uh, a STEMI. One and L, you can have it in all of them. One, L, five, and six. For the anterior and the septal, if we said two or more contiguous leads, well, these only have two leads facing it, so it has to be in both these leads to be a STEMI. And anterior, V3, V4, has to be elevated in both of those. So we said one millimeter ST segment elevation in two or more contiguous leads, and you know what a millimeter is, and now you know what contiguous leads are, or a new bundle branch block, left bundle branch block, with a caveat that leads V1 through three It's not one millimeter, it is two millimeters. Diagnosis STEMI on the EKG, we talked about this before. Remember here's our J point, go over one box and this is the beginning of our ST segment. And this is our baseline. That's about a five millimeter ST segment elevation. Or the new left bundle branch block. In a left bundle branch block, the left ventricular depolarization is delayed. And this causes the QRS complex to widen more than 120 milliseconds, or three tiny boxes. This is what it looks like. Typically, you'll see here in the precordial leads, here's our QRS, and it's relatively wide. You really can't see it here, but take my word for it that this is longer than three of those tiny boxes. If I say left bundle branch block, you're going to ask me how I differentiate from a right bundle branch block. Here it is in these pictures here. Let's just take a look at V1. Left bundle branch block has this morphology with ST segment elevation more often than not. And the right bundle branch block has the RSR prime or bunny ear type of morphology. So right, um, which starts with R, rabbit starts with R, and bunny starts with B. But if you do right bundle branch block and think of a rabbit, you're probably gonna think of a bunny and say, hey, that's a right bundle branch block morphology. Example cases. So in this portion, I'm gonna go relatively quickly because you have the opportunity to pause it and think about what your diagnosis is. Feel free to pause the presentation after you see the EKG, take your time to think about it, and then press play to see the diagnosis. So your objective number one is to identify if a STEMI has occurred, and objective number two is to identify the anatomical heart location. You have a 50-year-old male, hypertension, diabetes, 50-plus pack year of smoking. complaints of chest pain and shortness of breath for one hour. Feel free to pause the presentation now and study the EKG. Then press play and you will see the diagnosis. This is an anteroceptrolateral STEMI. Wow, that's a lot, but you know how to diagnose a STEMI because one, you know the anatomical heart locations, and you know how to recognize and diagnose a STEMI on the EKG. So anterior, let's talk about that. Anterior, you're thinking, okay, V3 and V4, V3 and V4. Where's my ST segment? Wow, it's not down here. What the who's who, It's way up here. So here's our J point around here, one box over. Here's our ST segment. And where's our baseline, the T to the next P, which is down here? If you can see, this is a ridiculous amount of ST segment elevation, V3, V4. How about septal? Septum is V1 and V2. Here is more than two tiny little boxes. This is one, two, two and a half or three. In V2, this is a ridiculous amount of boxes. And this is for illustrative purposes to show you that this is a ST segment elevation MI. How about lateral? We talked a lot about lateral, that's 1L5 and 6, 1, here's the ST segment elevation, here's the baseline, L, ST segment elevation, here's the baseline, In the tiny little boxes are these tiny things here, 5 and 6, ST segment's elevated, ST segment's elevated, so this is an anterior, septal, lateral stemming. 47-year-old male, no past medical history, complains of chest pain, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting for 3 hours. Feel free to pause your presentation now, study the EKG, and then press play to resume and see the diagnosis. Anteroceptal STEMI, Okay, where is the anterior? You're thinking in your mind, oh, I remember anterior was on the precordial leads, the butts of the arrows were inside the chest, and the arrows pointed out to the side. And if I take a picture from those arrows, I'm looking at these V3 and V4. So anterior is V3 and V4, elevated more than two millimeters. Remember in leads V1 through three has to be two millimeters. So that's definitely more than two millimeters or two boxes. V4, that's definitely more than one. V1 and V2 for the septum, that's just about two millimeters there. This is definitely more than two millimeters. 99 female, complains of weakness. anterolateral STEMI, anterolateral STEMI. So, anterior, what leads are anterior? V3 and V4, three and four. If you look here, here's our J point. Go over one box, it's still maybe around here. Our baseline is the T to the next P. V3 has to be two millimeters. Remember, V1 through three, the number is two, not one. That's elevated, and if you're looking here, you'd be like, wow, this is relatively elevated and that's on the septum, but this is not quite elevated, but I agree with you, this looks concerning. So I'd keep looking at the septum as well. In regards to the lateral aspect, lead one, looks like it's elevated. Two, it's elevated above this baseline here. Five and six, five looks concerning. Six actually has ST segment depression. 27-year-old male of chest pain for three days. Benign early repolarization. Take a look here in the precordial leads V1 through two through three. Remember, on this line, so this line here, out of all the EKG, is the exemption where you need two millimeters or more. Here's our baseline. Go across. This is one, two. That's two millimeters elevated. Here's our baseline. It's about two millimeters elevated. However, this is consistent with benign early repol in regards to look at the morphology of this ST segment. Looks like, almost like a smiley face. See how it goes up? As opposed to the tombstone characteristics when you see it, it goes up and around like the other ones that we saw. So this is consistent with benign early repol. 65 female history of diabetes complains of epigastric pain. Inferior STEMI. If you remember, uh, what are the inferior leads? You remember leads two, three, and AVF. Those are all arrows that points to the floor. If you took a picture of the heart, the arrows point to the floor, so you're on the floor taking a picture of the heart, and you're taking a picture of the inferior aspect of the heart. So, two, three, and AVF. We look here, you really can't see the tiny boxes, but that's just about a millimeter elevated from this baseline, which is the T to the next P. Here's the ST segment here. Here Here's the t and XP. This is almost three to four millimeters elevated. You can see here, this is just about maybe two millimeters elevated. Inferior STEMI. 35, male smoker complains of chest pain, shortness of breath, diaphoresis, vomiting, and dyspnea on exertion after he's getting his workout on. Inferior STEMI. Two, three, and AVF. You'll recognize here are the baseline, and this is definitely elevated more than two boxes from this baseline. 49 female, history of hypertension complains of fatigue and dizziness. Left bundle branch block. Now this is the morphology we were discussing earlier where the QRS duration is more than 120 milliseconds or three tiny little boxes. And what I mean by tiny boxes is there's other boxes on here that are larger ones, which are five high and five across. The Tiny boxes you can't really see that well on these resolutions, but the QRS here Is more than three boxes, and this is the morphology of a left bundle branch block. And it's also associated with ST segment elevation. Because if you look in lead V1, which is the septum, here's the baseline. Extend the baseline here. We got one, two, three, about four millimeter ST segment elevation. Similar here. Here is our baseline and T to the next P. This is definitely more than two millimeters. So that'd be concerning for a uh, STEMI. However, this happens to be a left bundle branch block. (coughs) Once again, if you're in the field. And you have a patient with chest pain, and you have ST-segment elevation that's consistent with a STEMI, activate STEMI. 55-year-old male, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, gout, brought in by ambulance for altered level of consciousness. Hyperkalemia. Check a look at these PT waves. Here, 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 and here. Peak T waves associated with hyperkalemia. 75 year old male, history of hypertension, diabetes, left bundle branch block, complains of shortness of breath and diaphoresis for one hour. Left bundle branch block with STEMI. And your question is, well, if this patient has a left bundle branch block, how am I supposed to know he has a STEMI? Good question. I haven't taught that to you yet, however, at the end of this uh, lecture, there's a bonus section on diagnosing STEMI in a patient with a known left bundle branch block. Once again, if you're in the field and they have ST segment elevation of one or more millimeters and two or more contiguous leads and chest pain, diagnose them with a STEMI until proven otherwise. We'll sort out the details in the emergency department. Six-year-old male complains of belly pain. paced. So this patient has a pacer here. If you look, you'll see the pacer spikes. So a spike here, spike here. Looks like he has both the atrial and ventricular pacer. If they're paced from their ventricle, you're gonna have a wide complex type of rhythm. And that's gonna be consistent with something that looks like a left bundle branch block pattern. 69 year old male, history of MI, status post cabbage. Complaints of chest pain, shortness of breath, and his EKG shows uh, no change from prior. Chest pain, shortness of breath, EKG is unchanged. Left ventricular aneurysm. If you're thinking this patient has a either a septal or maybe an anterior stemmy, good job because this patient has the EKG characteristics that are consistent with what we talked about but it's also congruent with someone with the previous aneurysm because they have residual ST segment elevation. So here is the baseline. This is elevated. Here's the baseline of V3. That's elevated. V1 looks like it's getting close, and V3 looks like it's concerning. So if you were to say, hey, you know what, this patient with chest pain and shortness of breath in the field with this EKG, say they have a STEMI and come on to the emergency department. But this happens to be a left ventricular aneurysm. 55 female complained of chest pain shortness of breath for 5 hours anterior lateral STEMI Okay take a look at the lateral leads here 1 aL 5 and 6 see how these ST segments here are higher than the baseline ST segment here is just above the baseline here See five and six. Here's our ST segment here, here, and this one in, in uh, It says C for some reason. This is V. This is elevated as well. Just to see if you were paying attention. Thirty-five female complains of fever, body aches, chest pain worse with lying down. Two days. pericarditis. Now pericarditis is a diagnosis where your EKG is going to show diffuse ST segment elevations or PR depressions. They will both make each other look like each other. If your ST segment is elevated, it'll look like your PR is lower. But in this case, you can have both of those, ST segment elevation and PR depression. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at lead number two. Here's our baseline. And you see your PR interval is depressed a little bit. In regards to the ST7 elevation, slight elevation here, in lead 1, V5, V6. Looks a little bit here in V4, in V3, the anterior, even the septum a little bit. Wow, how about in lead 2? So if this patient were to have an occlusive thrombus in her heart causing these symptoms, she'd have to have one in the lateral aspect, in the inferior aspect, and the anterior aspect, and maybe even the septum. She'd have to have a whole clot clogging everything up, which is unlikely if she's still up and talking, talking about her chest pain hurts. So usually in pericarditis, you have to take your history and your physical examination, and it's gonna be EKG that has diffuse ST segment elevation and or PR depression um, that would have to, you would have to have a massive heart attack everywhere to have that morphology on your EKG. 86 year old male, chest pain, nausea, 30 minutes. This is a posterior STEMI. This is another exception to the rule. A posterior STEMI is probably the only STEMI you're gonna see for which you don't have any ST segment elevation on your typical 12 lead EKG. What you have are ST segment depressions. And where are they at? Those depressions are in the septal leads, V1, ST segment is depressed compared to the baseline. V2, ST segment is depressed compared to the baseline. Now, how are we diagnosing uh, STEMI, which is ST segment elevation MI, on an EKG that has ST segment depressions? Well, the answer is, on the posterior aspect of the heart, it's a mirror of the anterior aspect of the heart in regards to what it looks like on the EKG. So the septum, as you recall, those two leads are on the front, is a mirror image of the posterior aspect. So these ST segment depressions here in the septum are actually ST segment elevations in the posterior aspect of the heart. A way to confirm your diagnosis is to continue with your precordial leads. Typically they go from V1 through V6. You can add a V8, and 9 that goes to the back of the heart. Repeat your EKG and see if that shows ST segment elevation. Conversely, you can take this same EKG here, turn it upside down, and look at it through a light or your screen, and what you're gonna see is an inverse or inversion of this. So inverted, this will actually be your QRS with a Q wave, and this would be your ST segment here, and this would be your T to the next P. Once again, it's a, uh, a more advanced uh, diagno- not diagnostic uh, strategy in the field, but if you know it, use it. Back to the case. Your lady with chest pain, oh, no chest pain, I'm sorry, just shortness of breath, a little bit of nauseousness, she smokes, your exam wasn't too exciting, and you got to the EKG and it showed this, and you said she has a STEMI. Where is this STEMI? Inferior wall ST segment elevation MI, in leads to three in AVF. In patients with the inferior wall STEMIs our concern is that they have a right ventricular infarction uh, because the inferior uh, wall is supplied by the right coronary artery more often than not. In that case you want to do a right-sided EKG or just do a V4R which is essentially taking the electrode the number 4 V4 on the left and moving it to the right and seeing if there's ST segment elevation. In this case, here's our V4R, R R standing for right. Looks like it's elevated. ST segment is elevated. Here you can see your boxes. One, two, maybe three box elevation. Three millimeters. Right ventricular infarction. STEMI pitfalls and medical legal issues. Prolonged times to the initial EKG. Missed atypical symptoms. Be aware of women. Be aware of old people. And be aware of diabetics. So if you have an old diabetic woman coming in with some weird symptoms, have on your differential diagnosis acute coronary syndrome. Improper EKG interpretation. Failure to get serial EKGs on patients with persistent chest pain. If your patient is continuing to have chest pain, get another EKG. It's a dynamic diagnostic tool that may give you information sooner than you would have otherwise gotten. Delayed care. And an imbalance in the consideration of aerobic dissection. In summary, we talked about STEMI or ST-segment elevation MI, which is complete occlusion of the coronary artery. We talked about the diagnosis of STEMI, which is one millimeter ST-segment elevation in two or more contiguous leads, or a new left bundle branch block, with the caveat or the exception that in precordial leads V1, 2, and 3, it has to be two millimeters. We talked about the anatomy and the pathophysiology of STEMI, pre-hospital and emergency department management, PCI versus lytics, and recognizing the STEMI on the EKG. Once again, this is Eric McCoy, a.k.a. McCoy, a.k.a. EMAC, from the University of California, Irvine, Department of Emergency Medicine. Bonus info, Scarbosa criteria. These are advanced tactics that probably most of us physicians don't know about. This is for diagnosing a STEMI in patients with an old left bundle branch block. Now there's a few diagnostic points you can get and with this certain number of points, you have a certain likelihood of having a STEMI. So the first one is ST segment elevation of one millimeter or more in a lead with an upward QRS. You get five points. Number two is ST segment depression of one or more millimeters in leads v1, 2, or 3. You get three points. The third one is ST segment elevation of more than five millimeters in a lead with a downward QRS. You get two points. Again, ST segment elevation of five or more millimeters in a lead with a downward QRS, you get two points. Now, in regards to the Scarbosa criteria, these don't have to be in continuous leads. So if the score is five to 10, for instance, if you have ST segment elevation uh, of one more, one or more millimeters in an upward QRS, so you get five points, and they have depression in these leads, that's eight points. They have an 88 to 100% probability of having an acute MI. However, Zero points doesn't mean there's a zero probability of having an MI. With zero points, there's still a 16% chance, not change, of STEMI in these patients. So it has a high specificity and a low sensitivity. Thank you for your time and attention. McCoy, signing out. Work smart, not hard.